Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we speak with one Canadian about the days he spent trying to renew two passports for his sons ahead of a sudden trip to Italy, and why so many other people are experiencing similar long delays. We speak with Global Edmonton anchor Gord Steinke about his beginnings as a bass player in a Canadian rock band, his move to journalism, his 30 years with the station, and his decision to step down at the end of the summer. But first, new census data shows Canada's population isn't just aging, it's aged. The working population has never been older, and the number of people 85 and older has doubled since 2001 and could triple by 2046. We look at the impact on the healthcare system, the economy, and whether we're anywhere near prepared for what lies ahead. But we begin tonight with new insight on Canada's population, Canada's aging or aged population these days. StatsCan released data today from the 2021 census that shows that more than 20% of working age Canadians are close to retirement. That won't come as a surprise. We've been discussing that for years now. All G7 countries are in somewhat similar situations. But never has our workforce been so old. And that's not all. The number of people 85 and older has doubled since 2001 and could triple by 2046. The rapid growth, of course, is a trend that health policy experts have long been warning about is People 85 and older obviously have typically higher health care needs. That could stretch an already overburdened health system in a critical way. Laura Martell is the director of the Center for Demography at StatsCan, and he says ensuring seniors get proper care will be a challenge. That's obviously a question for policymakers. I mean, uh, they will have to... Uh, they will have to find ways to deal with the situation, but they certainly can look at what other countries, for example, have done throughout the world. Laura Martel, the director of the Center for Demography at StatsCan. Looking at other countries is something my next guest knows a lot about. Dr. Samir Sinha is the director of geriatrics at the Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. He's also director of health policy research and co-chair of the National Institute on Aging, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University, think tank focused on the realities of Canada's aging population. Thank you so much for your time on what is a, a big day for this topic. Thanks for having me. I would, I've started this, you know, I was going to start with the most obvious question. Were there any surprises in today's data for you? I gather probably not. Not really. I mean, this is one of those things where I've been, you know, closely looking at this data for years. And uh, as a geriatrician, as one of the rare doctors in Canada who specializes in the care of older adults, um, I knew at the start of my career, you know, the year that the baby boomers started turning 65, only a decade ago, that we would be here um, on this day at this number. And that, frankly, we're right on track so that by 2031, one in four Canadians will actually be an older adult and our baby boomers will start turning 85. So um, everything is, is, you know, you know, they're, you know, statistics don't lie and demography doesn't lie. Um, we're a pretty predictable bunch of individuals. I think what's, what's been unpredictable is how we're going to respond to meet the needs of our aging population and why we're not doing more to, uh, to get it done. You, it's funny that you mentioned that because my mom turned 75 today. You know, she's a baby boomer. Um, and obviously, we've thought a lot about what lies ahead. And this is a conversation that I feel like, and you've certainly studied it a lot, but I feel like it's a conversation we maybe haven't had enough of over the years. We certainly talked about long-term care during the pandemic. But I understand that you see a lot of red flags in the way that we um, take care of, of, of our elder Canadians. Yeah, I think the challenge is first and foremost, for, foremost is that when we created Medicare back in 1966, uh, we actually created a system uh, for a population whose average age was 27 years of age, and when we didn't often live beyond our 60s. So I can forgive all of us as Canadians for actually creating a system that works really well for younger people, people who don't tend to have chronic diseases, are not living with dementia, and, and need a lot of kind of in-home or other forms of long-term care. You know, I get it. I, I get that's why we never enshrined these parts of care into our Canada Health Act. But now long-term care, if you think about um, you know, nursing home care, care, care in people's homes. It's the largest form of care in Canada that's not included 
in our universal healthcare system or 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 our Canada Health Act. So it, we really have left it up in a very piecemeal way to the provinces and territories to kind of figure it out. Um, and because we haven't never had a real national focus on these on on this area of care, uh, it really starts to become quite variable how provinces and territories have kind of dealt with it. And collectively, what's led to the fact is is that because we've always been focused on issues related to a younger uh, population. Now that we're aging rapidly, we also see that compared to the other major OECD countries or G7 countries, we tend to spend 30% less on on providing you know forms of long-term care like in-home care or, uh, or nursing home care. We we spend about 30% less than the average major country, um, and and therefore we shouldn't be surprised to see that it just took a pandemic to really show all of Canada how fragile our long-term care system is, especially when we underfund it so much. Dr. Sinha, I was stunned by that stat, the 30%. I mean, I figured it would be something like a 10%, but a 30%, that's a huge, huge gap. It's massive. I mean, because when you when you, you realize, like, wh- why was Canada's death rate in our long-term care homes literally double um, what the international average was? Um, you really get the results, you know, that you pay for. And when we, when we, when we've let, you know, this entire system of care operate in the shadows, for example, where people are really making kind of are are, are being paid, you know, pretty poor wages compared to their colleagues working in publicly funded hospitals, um, it, you know, it starts to make sense pretty quickly that if you're not investing appropriately. Uh, now you can understand why it's really hard to recruit people to work in the system and why there's always a revolving door of workers in the system because it doesn't represent well-paid work that recognizes the skill that it takes to care for uh, an aging population that's complex as well. So so it's one of those things where I think it, it's helpful when, as a country, when we're starting to think about aging, when we start looking at ourselves compared to other countries, we realize that now that we are aging or now that we are aged, um, it is time that we start making the appropriate investments because now when we hear about um, hospital beds that are filled with older people who can't go home, um, we have to realize that's because we underfund our system so much, there aren't enough appropriate long-term care beds. There's not enough appropriate home care. And when we hear that, oh, there's 50,000 Canadians waiting for a nursing home bed, well, a different stat is should be helpful for Canadians because we have to realize there's 500,000 Canadians with unmet home care needs, and one in three older adults who's receiving government-funded home care says they're not even getting enough to meet their needs. So then we shouldn't be surprised that if we underfund our home care system, it's what actually drives institutionalization, ironically, in more expensive settings like acute care hospitals. And so we're actually just wasting our money uh, by not actually spending more effectively in areas um, that will actually you know, create a more sustainable healthcare system. Yeah, that was one of the things that you've pointed out in different forums that I always thought was very interesting that it's not only that we, we it's not only that we're not spending enough, we're spending it improperly to some extent. And you've often talked about this lean towards institutionalization uh, for elder care and just how inefficient it is throughout the system, that it clogs up the whole system in some sense. And it's not even the best care we could be giving. Yeah, because, again, if you ask anybody, where do you aspire to age? I, I haven't met a Canadian yet who says, I aspire to end up in a long-term care home. And certainly during the pandemic, when many Canadians became exposed to um, the realities of living in a long-term care home and, 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 and the poor quality of care that's sometimes provided just because we underfunded so much, uh, we saw you know a huge shift in public opinion. We now had... 60% of Canadians who've now said, for example, that they've shifted their thinking as to whether or not they'd ever think it would be acceptable to age in a long-term care or retirement home. And now we have close to 100% of older Canadians and over 90% of Canadians in general saying they will do everything humanly possible to stay in their own homes for as long as possible. The challenge is, is that for many Canadians, they don't actually have the financial security in retirement to afford private options that might be able to keep them at home. And many don't aren't aware that if you have to turn to government-funded options, um, you're looking at maybe a few hours a day at most, and that's in a 24-hour day. Um, and a lot of people think, well, uh, my children will look after me. Well, 
with the declining birth rate that was emphasized in today's um, um, census uh, data release, we know that actually people are having fewer children. And even if you are having children, um, it's not a guarantee that they're going to be living in the same community as you are as you get older. And so we also know that in about 30 years' time, by 2050, there will be 30% fewer available family caregivers um, than we currently have, if you will, you know, proportionally. And, uh, and so whoever's remaining, if you, you know, in the old days, if you had three or four kids and now you only have one, well, those remaining family caregivers who are around are going to have to up their productivity by 40% to meet the same amount of care that unpaid family caregivers are currently providing, which tends to be 90% of the home care that people actually end up receiving is usually from family members and friends in an unpaid way, only 10% usually from government sources. I heard it today referred to as a date with demographic destiny. Uh, Dr. Samir Sinha of the Director of Geriatrics, the Sinai Health System and University Health Network, Director of Health Policy Research and co-chair of the National Institute on Aging. Uh, when we come back, there is, in fact, a good example of what Canada might or should be doing out there just on the other side of the Atlantic in Denmark. And we're going to talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Samir Sinha, Director of Geriatrics at the Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto, Director of Health Policy Research and Co-Chair of the National Institute on Aging. We're talking about census data released today that shows the huge growth in the number of people over the age of 85 and over in this country, and just the implication that's going to have on our healthcare system, specifically long-term care. I was reading a stat today, Dr. Sinha, that the CMA, Canadian Medical Association, says home care demand is expected to increase by 50% in less than a decade. Uh, you've looked at Denmark as being a shining example of where Canada could bring itself if it starts now, sometime in the next while. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think people start looking at these issues and say, my God, you know, like, where do you even begin? Um, you start seeing some of the reports about our long-term care system and 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 people say, you know, can it actually be fixed and or is it is it too far broken? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, there's a positive message here is that because we've been so slow to kind of figure things out or, or move in in the right direction, um, we only have to look beyond our borders to see another a number of other countries that are older than us. Um, that have actually been working on these issues for years and have tried and, and figured out some things that we actually can apply here in Canada. And so a country that I often look to is Denmark, because while people say, oh, it's a small country, it's only about 6 million people, um, you know, they have a smaller geography, they could fit in one of our provinces, so why even bother? Um, because they also have a publicly funded healthcare system. Their healthcare system looks largely like our system, but, you know, back in 1988, that's where our system started to look very different because they had the exact same issues we had. They had a rapidly aging population at that time, as we did too. And they started seeing that, wait a minute, um, when we don't actually have adequate infrastructure for older people, then we tend to actually be institutionalizing them, putting them into care homes. But those care homes can be very expensive. Um, and home care is actually what they want, and it's actually a lot cheaper to provide that. So that's when Denmark actually created an explicit policy in the late 80s, where they were going to start making huge investments in their home care program moving forward. And by doing that, they actually avoided building any new nursing home beds over the next 20 years. And they actually closed thousands of hospital beds because their hospitals were no longer filled with people waiting to go to their own homes um, or to go to a nursing home because they had robust, adequate home care that could be initiated within, you know, as short as 24 hours um, and allow people to leave hospital as soon as possible and stay in their own homes for as long as possible. Because right now in Canada, um, our Canadian Institutes of Health Information says between 10 to 30% of the people entering long-term care homes in Canada don't even need to go there because they could probably be supported to live independently in the community, you know, with adequate home care supports. So all the data that we have in our country, um, it just shows, uh, you know, kind of the example of when we don't follow the lead of Denmark, where we're ending up. But the good news is, is that we can start making similar changes now um, that could actually achieve some of the same outcomes. And one would think, and I just have a few minutes left here, this is such a fascinating topic, we could talk about this all night, so I'll have to have you back on to talk about it some more. Um, but given what happened during the pandemic, one would think that the impetus is now there. 
uh, within Canadian culture, Canadian, the Canadian population, to make these changes? It is, and I think it, it very much is, because uh, you just have to look to uh, Ontario, which is uh, about to call an election, and you can immediately see that while um, this current government has talked about putting you know, more people, um, building more care homes and building more long-term care homes, that's not the advice I gave to this government back in 2018 when they got elected. I said, you need to follow Denmark, you need to invest more in home care. We've got examples of how those investments will pay off in dividends. They decided to build 30,000 new beds, but I think the reckoning that's come here where public opinion is saying we want more home care and everybody realizes that home care is cheaper. Um, it's now leading to the Ontario government after a few years of grossly underfunding our home care system to now saying we're going to at least pledge a billion dollars over three years. And you've got the other two political parties making home care a key part of their platform. So, you know, I think, you know, we're starting to read the tea leaves and understand that, frankly, um, if I appeal to politicians by them desperately wanting to get elected, by giving us what we want and actually saving money at the same time, then great. Uh, but I think the key is that we need to move forward in this direction. And I'm glad to see it's now, you know, it's now influencing a political agenda as well. Dr. Samir Sinha, thank you so much for your time tonight. I look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Thanks for having me, Ben. We're going to talk passports this half hour or how difficult it is to renew one these days. Some Canadians have been waiting outside government offices for hours, days, getting in there at four o'clock in the morning, trying to renew their passports because there's been such a resurgence in travel and obviously a lot of people over the pandemic may have found suddenly when they wanted to go somewhere that their passports had expired. So with thousands of Canadians booking trips uh, leading to that surge in demand, Conservative MPs earlier this week were questioning the government about these delays. Why are there such long lineups? Why are there such long delays, even forcing people to cancel trips? Service Canada Minister Karina Gould responded saying they're doing everything they can. Why is Passport Canada offering such poor service? And why don't they get their ducks in a row and give Canadians the service they expect from a key government office? We have, in fact, hired an additional 500 passport officers to help process this. We have made Service Canada's available to ensure that individuals who need to travel on a non-urgent basis can deposit their applications. That's Service Canada Minister Karina Gould there. She also said that there's a simplified process to renew passports that have been expired for less than five years. Small solace, though, of course, a lot of people leave this a bit last minute or have to. Uh, one of those who found themselves suddenly needing to renew passports for his two sons for a trip to Italy is a familiar name on this show for other reasons. Flavio Volpe is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. We spoke to him a lot during the blockade of the bridge in Windsor earlier this month. Well, or a few months ago, earlier this month, he became a man on very much a mission to get pro proper travel documents for his eldest, Alessandro, after he received an invitation to try out for the Italian under-18 baseball team. He needed another one for his other son as well. It turned into quite the ordeal. Well, joining me now with more on the struggles to renew those two passports and how it all turned out is Flavio Volpe. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So I think a lot of this was a relatively impromptu trip, right? So, but just tell me about the experience. First of all, when did you figure out new passports were needed and how much of a problem did you think it was going to be right off the bat? Well, I, you know, my uh, older son, he's 17. He got an invitation from the Italian national uh, baseball team to come for a tryout uh, to play, hopefully for them at the U18 World Cup this year. And we got the invitation uh, we're dual citizens. Everybody was very happy. And I just started to look at travel requirements for uh, Canada to Italy uh, from a COVID perspective. What kind of testing do we need to do, et cetera? Uh, I looked at his passport, though, and it expired two days after uh, we would have had to return. And right. looked up the rules for uh, Europe. And um, it said, you need to have your Canadian passport has to have at least three months left on it on the day of your return. So it started a scramble. We got an invitation on a Monday. We had to be there for, um, uh, for the weekend. And uh, 
we scrambled to get tickets uh, because it was the only way I think to get the emergency service and of course demonstrate to Service Canada or Passport Canada that that you have uh, immediate travel. And I bought tickets for myself and both of my boys, who are one's fifteen and one's seventeen, who hadn't seen the, the land that their grandparents had come from. And I said, let's do this as a family. And uh, it started a biblical quest uh, to get uh, a passport uh, that only arrived, you know, three hours uh, before we needed to be at the airport on Easter Sunday. Well put. Uh, yeah. this, this biblical quest, I, I gather, began the way that all passport renewal quests begin with with, with a, a trip down to your local passport office, which is always a relatively simple, at least in the past, was a relatively simple task. Right. And, you know, remember, this is the week of the of the Easter long weekend. So Friday is a statutory holiday. And uh, what, what I decided to do was, look, let me dedicate Wednesday to figuring this out. We went to the Mississauga office, which was close to by the office here, I thought. Mm-hmm. I could dedicate a couple hours to that and uh, we'll get our passports. Uh, you know, just previous to that, uh, in in just past months, um, if you wanted to get an emergency passport, you could make an appointment uh, through COVID protocols. You make an appointment, show up at your appointment, uh, especially if you are on emergency travel. Well, they changed that in, uh, in uh, the last couple of months. And it says, if your travel is within the next two business days, um, you can't make an appointment, show up to an office. So, uh, went and lined up in Mississauga uh, essentially all day. And um, probably after the fourth hour, realized I wasn't even going to get a service ticket to be able to actually join the real line. It's in a small mall here, and uh, the Serpentine uh, line went uh, throughout the interior of the mall and then to the exterior. Started chatting with some of the people that were there, and they said, well, we got here at 4.30 in the morning, and we haven't been served yet. And that was about 2.30 in the afternoon. And I thought, well, this... This is going to uh, this is going to end well here. Uh, why don't we go looking around? Um, I left there. I went down to the to the Victoria Street Toronto office, uh, which also offered this express service, and uh, the experience was much the same. You know, the lineup was outside. Uh, talked to some people who said that this was their second or third day attempting to get into the line with express service, and I thought, let me just stick to it because. Um, Friday is a statutory holiday. A Sunday, a Saturday is a is a weekend, and then we're flying on another statutory or another holiday on the Sunday. I can't really leave this line. Well, I was forced to leave the line because the office closed. <laughs> so I thought um, I got to get up at it early on the Thursday, and I went to the North York office, which is the Young and Shepherd office uh, north of the north of the four hundred one, and I managed to get there at six forty five a.m. And um, with one business day to go, essentially, by the time the office opened at 8.30, I was 50th in line, and they were taking the 8.30 appointments. Of course, the people who weren't traveling within the next two days were the ones getting the appointments, and they came in every 15 minutes or so. Now, I have a day job. I had to go to a board meeting, so I had to leave for the board meeting. (laughs) I thought, let me just take one more shot. And I drove out to Whitby in the afternoon to do that. Wow, so you've been all over the city at this point. I mean, you've been all over the GT, the greater Toronto area at this point. <laughs> I'm like, uh, I could be like the weather person on the, on uh, your uh, current passport wait time is. Yeah. The Whippy office was great. You know, I got to the front of the line, but they said to me, we're not a printing office. So yeah, you got in like Indiana Jones, you rolled under the door. <laughs> we can't do this. Well, they were very courteous. All, you know, I'll say this. All the staff is very courteous. Of course, they're looking at incredible lineups. And they're, they're thinking, hey, by the way, we don't have the resources to serve you. Um, it, it's, um, I think it's stressful on all sides of it. But somebody advised me there and said, look, there's a weekend service. But you have to call after the, uh, all the offices close at 8 p.m. And you leave a voicemail. And you tell them you need an emergency weekend service. And by the way, it's $335 extra for the first passport. And if you need a second one, it's another 110 If you're willing to pay the fees, they may be able to slot you in. And so I left messages twice on the Friday and I got a call in this Saturday morning and they said, um, you should come in um, on Sunday and uh, we can turn them around in two hours. And so, but, but by, by good Friday and you're leaving yeah. on Easter Sunday by good Friday, you don't have these passports. No, I'm in a bit of a panic to be honest. And, and part <laughs> of the panic is I got the one son who's, who got the uh, invitation to play for Team Italy, has an Italian passport. You know, we're doing congratulations, this. by the way. I should say congratulations on Alexander's. Yes, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but, you know, I could have gone with him 
but of course, that was also, you know, putting yourself at the mercy of the airlines who are the ones that scan the passports. You know, I have a 17-year-old son who's a minor, doesn't speak the language, who's going to fly into Italy using a passport from another country uh, versus uh, me from Canada, and then potentially using his Canadian one to fly back, you know, two days before it expires. The other guy, God bless him, he was going to be out of uh, out of luck. But I didn't cancel the tickets uh, because I thought maybe I could pull off a hail mary at the end, and right. uh, you know, not to be not to be punny. You know, here we are no, on Sunday. It is hail mary's answered, right? It is Easter weekend. Yes, it's a, yeah. so it is. It, it is in fact. So you end up, I guess, uh, with just hours to go, you end up getting yep. these two passports. How did that happen? Well, I got that call and, and they said, look, you got to be present. The parents have to be present, especially because one of them was was a 16 and under uh, child passport. You got to make sure that your references uh, and your guarantor are available to be reached. And I said, well, I mean, it's Easter Sunday, but I, you know, I'm pretty sure we can, we can arrange that. Then you, you show up, you drop it off. They run through the, the machine with you and it's, Hey, by the way, here's the cost of the pass, which is about $200 uh, plus the $450 in extra fees. And I just, you know, the reflecting for myself, look, we're, you know, we've, we're doing okay in life. And, and, and anytime you can answer a, an invitation to Italy uh, uh, for baseball, you know, you shouldn't yeah. complain about what things cost, but for people who, um, who really need things for lots of reasons, like going uh, for medical reasons or, 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 or emergency reasons, you know, here's another $450 because uh, they couldn't accommodate you because there's such a crush on the system. And by the way, that by the time we got to Sunday, you go Sunday, Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, I'm five days into trying to get an emergency passport, which in the past used to be 24 hour turnaround uh, or less. And so who's got that five days to spare who would have you know panicked and tried to cancel the tickets and taken that penalty who's got that extra 450 dollars uh, 445 dollars to spare you know we're all kind of carrying the burden of a system that's a little bit overloaded and i think i reflected to to people who who asked me you know what what's your suggestion look i know the minister uh and the department are working very hard at this and you've got this crush that's from external reasons but you know certainly a passport is a foundational document for a citizen and it isn't uh, isn't a privilege that you earn it's a right that you have as a citizen and so we should Make sure that we've got the resources to deliver the document that you have the most fundamental right to at a time for when people need it. Uh, one of the things that was suggested to me is when we left a, a message to say, look, you got to make the case on why yours is an emergency. And I thought to myself, there really should be nothing arbitrary about whether you get granted this the, your uh, a, a passport or not. It, either it is something that you have a right to or you don't. And you either have a right to it immediately or you don't. And then there are things that I think that, um, you know, because of this, the times we're in the pandemic, uh, the crush for uh, services for Passport Canada come from crises in other areas. Right. If I have a passport that is valid, but doesn't have that extra three months in there, I think perhaps uh, this is one of the scenarios where the government could negotiate with um, with foreign countries who say that they recognize visa-free passage of Canadian citizens, but that the fact that that uh, that the government can't deliver the service in time, uh, they might work out some uh, short-term provision for us to travel on valid passports that may not have that three or six months that are required. I'm speaking with Flavio Volpe, the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. But in this case, a father looking for a passport or two passports, in this case, renewals for his son so they could take a trip to Italy where his eldest uh, had been invited to play or at least to try out for the Italian national under 18 baseball team. Uh, when we come back, we'll quickly discuss what it a uh, what it's like to travel these days, because there's a lot of curiosity, I think, from people out there about taking international trips. So we'll talk to Flavio about what it was like once he had those passports in hand at long last, what the trip to Italy was like and what kind of uh, advice he has to those who are thinking of overseas travel in the not too distant future. That's next. I'm back with Flavio Volpe, the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association, but in this case, father who managed to uh, secure two passport renewals for his sons so they could take a trip to Italy, a, uh, a trip that came up very quickly so that his eldest uh, could try out for the under-18 national baseball team in Italy, uh, dual citizenship there. So congratulations on the invitation. What was the, what was the trip like? I mean, you, you, I hadn't been away. I was, away, I was in Paris the same time you were in Rome to some, um, and, and it was 
very strange to go to the airport again. I have to say Vancouver's airport was quite quiet, uh, but what was your, what was your trip like? It's a good question. You know, in, in my day business as the president of the auto parts manufacturer association, uh, I have been traveling, but essentially been to, to uh, Washington uh, or to other U S uh, uh, auto capitals. This is the first time in uh, another country. And uh, Italy, of course, was hit very hard by the pandemic in the first wave. And, and and they still take very seriously mask mandates and their equivalent of our vaccine passports called a green pass. And um, you could not go into a public space uh, or into restaurants and other places that uh, I think we're all kind of used to here during the last few waves without a mask. And you had to demonstrate your green pass or the Equivalent for Canadian travelers, of course, that's a three-shot vaccine passport QR code, not two. And um, they were very strict. Uh, They checked at every uh, checkpoint. I I tacked on uh, some meetings with uh, automakers there while I was in uh, Italy. And uh, even in those meetings with automakers, uh, they stopped me uh, and made sure that uh, I checked in with the vaccine or they would have canceled the meeting. And the meetings were held with masks. Uh, it, uh, Italy, of course, is a place uh, w- that relies on a lot of tourism. So they, of course, uh, trying to be extremely welcome and bringing people in. But I think people need to know that that is uh, still a matter of fact in a country like that if you were going to visit. So we, I'll tell you another thing. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. No, no, go ahead, Ben. I was saying what was interesting, it's such a contrast to, to France where you had to wear a mask on the subway, on the metro. Yeah. You had to wear a mask on public transit. You had to wear a mask on the plane. But absolutely everywhere else was mask free. I mean, you didn't have to wear a mask in the museums. You didn't have to wear a mask in restaurants, cafes. Um, so it's an interesting contrast. So go ahead. You were saying. Yeah, no, I look, I, I, I was I was surprised. And I think I just go back to my to uh, my recollection of the first wave where Italy was probably the epicenter of that uh, yeah. first wave outside of China. And, and perhaps that's the sensitivity. Yeah. Uh, new rules for returning to Canada says Canadian citizens returning to Canada don't need to test anymore to come back. Well, I had booked a, a trip uh, via Air Canada directly to Rome, but then the return trip came through uh, Washington. And because that first flight was operated by United, I got to the airport three hours early in Rome for my return, and United told me I needed a I needed a uh, antigen test. I said, uh, "Look, just to be clear, I'm not I'm not uh, landing in a legal sense. I'm not uh, going through customs in the U.S." I said, "Doesn't matter." I I called um, Air Canada was the original vendor of the ticket, and they said, "Look, you're at the mercy of uh, United. Uh, can't really help you there." Now it wasn't clear, and I oh, I'm only saying this uh, for you know, your listeners understand that if you reroute, if you connect through another country other than Canada, you may have to get that, that, um, that uh, test. And, uh, you know, we stood in line at an airport in Rome at seven thirty in the morning, get a test. We missed that the check-in by 11 minutes. We had to change flights. And if you book that flight through an outside agency and not directly through the airline, there's no guarantee that the airline is going to give you a ticket without charging you for another one. And so um, be prepared. Look at, at uh, where you fly through, if it's not back direct to Canada, they the airlines don't care uh, whether you're going through customs in a Washington uh, or a New York on your way back. You are going into the U.S. You better have uh, a test. Valuable advice, Fabio Vope. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Well, it is the end of an era, or at least. By the end of the summer, it will be in Edmonton TV news. Not long after celebrating 30 years at the station, anchor Gord Steinke announced earlier this month that he's hanging up the microphone, so to speak, putting away the tie. Here he is announcing the news uh, on the news two weeks ago. Well, a big change is coming to Global News, but thankfully not for for several more months, mm-hmm. and it involves uh, you, our very own Gord Steinke. Do you have something to tell us? Uh, really? No. <laughs> what are you getting at? No, I, I celebrated 30 years uh, yes. a couple of months ago, and the light kind of went off, and we decided that uh, there's still many more things I want to do here. Uh, my bucket list is getting longer, so I thought, well, I can still get on a motorcycle. It's time to resign from Global Edmonton, and it's just been a wonderful 30 years here. The audience has been absolutely amazing, and the difficult part is 
is is leaving you guys because mm-hmm. we always have so much fun down here and everybody up in the newsroom and in the control room and producer Renee just said you know uh, we all worked together before we had gray hair <laughs> so I mean it's quite a family here but yeah. it just the timing feels right right now and I, I'd love to give somebody else a chance to sit here and have half the fun I've had in Edmonton for for 30 years as always, well said, Gord Steinke. Uh, and that is one thing you notice right away. I've been watching sort of uh, the videos that were announcing his 2016 Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, that watching and listening to people talk about the impact he's had on the community, it goes so much beyond what might be called his day job. So to talk uh, community, news, metal, mobsters, motorcycles, much more, it is my pleasure to welcome Gord Steinke to the show. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Well, Ben, it's such a pleasure to to be joining you here tonight as well. It's uh, and you've got great taste in music. It's a catchy tune. There, I, I was gonna say. I was gonna say. <laughs> if you knew how long and hard I looked to find something off that Larger Than Life album by Inner City from '82. Oh wow! And yeah. I couldn't. So I got to run, which is you. Uh, was That's- what we introed this whole segment with. Oh, that's great. It's great that you've had that. Uh, well, it really was your first career, wasn't it? Yeah, that was my first love, and I was on the road for seven years in a, in a rock band out of uh, Saskatoon, and that was when I got out of high school, and, and it took me all the way to Toronto, and I just had a wonderful uh, experience there, but uh, as I'm sure you know, you've heard the story, you're on the road for that long. We did an album, it was called Larger Than Life, and it went across the country faster than the band did, and then came back, and nothing really sold, so uh, uh, I decided to get in, get try to get a real career and, and as, as a storyteller and a songwriter, um, it all seemed to be the same, and journalism just seemed to be the next best thing. And was it ever a perfect fit for me? I had it just, it just, I just embraced it. Just loved meeting people and telling their stories. I was going to ask you that because after seven years, my dad was in the music business, sort of booking bands. Oh, cool. Actually, that's what he did. Um, so when you talk really? about sort of touring through all those bars in Quebec and Ontario, I, I, I get, yeah. I, I can picture some of those places. It must have been a strange. It must have been odd to leave that and find yourself back in a classroom, no matter how much oh, you liked it. That's uh, that was the hardest part because you go from that's all I knew, like out through high school and out, and then and then like you said, you're on the road. We're backing up bands and and uh, meeting some of your heroes, and and you're playing, and and you get a following going, and you think that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life, and then you realize, oh, this this you know you, you hear the horror stories too, and it's tough just uh, being alone and being in a hotel room. So yeah, it's kind of a, it's a very strange transition when I went from that and I cut my hair and I didn't even know how to tie a tie and ended up in a sociology class at the university of Regina, which was the precursor to getting into J school. And I didn't even know if I was going to, you know, at, at 24 years old, I wasn't even sure if I had enough in my brain power to get through some of the like ec- economics. Are you kidding me? But um, it was so much fun. It was like a breath of fresh air. It was such a different change and a challenge that I just embraced it. And uh, yeah, and, and here I can't believe that we're talking that that was 36 years ago. It's kind of crazy. It does fly by, doesn't it? You know, that line yeah, about it, everyone having gray hair. I mean, I mean, I started off a little bit later than you did, but man, does it go fast. Oh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, my career took me from, uh, I was a photographer after I got a J school um, as a a photographer back when we had to develop film in a lab for the Regina leader post. And I was, I was a feature writer for the, you know, I started in print and then I worked my way into radio, which I loved and thought I'd never leave. And then I ended up in television just all by fluke, really, just because people believed in me and they just thought, well, if you learn how to tie a tie, we'll put you on television and why don't you try reporting? And, and I was saying things like, well, I like working in radio better because I can tell longer stories and the, and the clips are longer and, and I can do more stuff you know you don't have to lug around a camp with a cameraman and in a van and anyway i just uh i I just found the power of television just kind of gripped me and that i did that for a while working at cbc regina and and, uh that's back in 1988 and then went down to minneapolis on an abc affiliate there for an all news channel which was really exciting because they did everything live you could go out in the field and do it live because they were so much ahead of, of, of when they were, they were really where TV was going by 1988. It was live. It was fast. It was all the things that TV in Canada was about to become. That must've been a really exciting experience to be in, in Minneapolis at that point. Well, it was, and, and the, it was such a, such a thrill to be down there because I, I, I was lucky at CBC because they'd uh, put me into every role I possibly could do. So I'd done entertainment. I've done hard news. I'd anchored uh, newscasts. So 
I think that's why they want to take me down. But when I got there, I just wasn't ready, you know, for how fast moving everything was going. They had, it was called Conus Communications, and it had uh, satellite trucks all over the world. And as long as you could get a clear hit from anywhere uh, with a satellite, you, you could be broadcasting live. So it was a bit of a mind blower for a guy from Saskatchewan yeah. at that time who, you know what it was like, you know, you had to do an intro and then you had to drive the tape back and then you gave it to an editor. And um, it was a long process. It was live television. The only thing that was live was in this news studio like we do now every night. So, yeah, yeah. it was quite a, quite a, a thrill. And uh, some of the stories we were covering the Jeffrey Dahmer trial, Manuel Noriega, right. of course, first Gulf War, and and you know watching Scud missiles going into Baghdad and Iraq from where we were sitting in Minneapolis, and broadcasting with this all news channel all over the world and into Los Angeles and New York. It was quite a, it was quite a thing. But I had wonderful people down there, and also had some family which helped. I lived with my grandmother. Oh, fantastic. So I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that was kind of fun. I hadn't seen her in years, so I stayed with her until my wife and daughter could come down for a few months. And uh, that was weird because she'd go to bed at 8 o'clock with her dog, Sugar, and I'd be I'd get home at about 2 in the morning. And <laughs> it was just kind of funny, but it was it was just wonderful. So, and, and then from that, because, I mean, I guess Minneapolis is a pretty big market in the U.S. That's a great job. Uh, but then Edmonton came calling. And, and and you decided, okay, I, I'm going to go do that. What what made you make that decision? I spent some time in Edmonton as a kid. It's a great place. Uh, but what made you decide? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to I'm going to that that sounds good to me. Well, it's it's going to probably sound a little bit weird. It was back when uh, the first Bush was there, and uh, Senator Durenberger uh, was there. They, there was a, a move they didn't like to. I was down there for four years. They didn't like to have Canadians taking American jobs. So my visa became to be in jeopardy, and my wife and daughter weren't allowed to work down there. Well, my daughter was just in uh, elementary school at the time. But um, we also realized, you know, we're only 400 miles, I think it was, from, the, from like the border. But we couldn't get uh, any Canadian news. And that was during the, the Oka uprising and stuff. But there was no Internet. There were no cell phones. And it was like we were completely cut off from Canada. So a, a bunch of things piled up, but it was really homesickness. And we thought, you know, it's been a real good experience here, but we're kind of homesick. Let's, you know, I got the, the offer through actually a, a talent coach who said, would you be interested in going back to Canada? There's an opening in Edmonton uh, for a six o'clock anchor reporter. And I said, would I? Let's, let's give it a go and learn if I didn't get the job. And the rest, as they I'm, say, is, is history. Uh, and what a history other, it's been. Yeah. yeah, and the other funny thing, you know, this is what I became, I, I actually got a ham radio. I got so frustrated down there. This is in 88, 89, 89. Right. I bought a ham radio through a military friend, and <laughs> I, got, I got CBC News out of Johannesburg, South Africa, just to find out what the heck's going on 400 miles from where I was sitting. It was just weird. That is, I mean, I remember being away in the late '80s. You know, you couldn't get any Canadian news anywhere. Like it was, it, you're, I can, I can only imagine how frustrating it would be being so close. Because one thing, Minnesota is being kind of, yeah, yeah. I worked with Harvard graduates and another uh, fellow. I won't name names from from mm -hmm. Princeton, and I won't another name. I had great co-anchors <laughs> down there too. But I remember one time a co-anchor looked at me and she goes, "I went to Vancouver, and what a beautiful city!" And you know what? She said, "They've got skyscrapers," and I was like, "Oh my god." They knew nothing about the history or anything about Canada, and still, you know, the, the the old cliche about them showing up at the border at customs with skis on the roof rack in July really hits home. But it's changed now because of the internet, and I hope it's changed. Anyway, they're a little bit more educated about what we do here. I'm just too proud to be a Canadian. To I don't know. I just love it here. The history and yeah. everything about it. I'm speaking with Gord Steinke, uh, Global Edmonton's anchor, uh, calling it uh, calling it a day, so to speak, after after 30 yeah. years there. But I, I'm sure you have. We'll take a quick break when we come back. I really, you know, I, I really want to ask you. But all there's so much to cover in 30 years. But you've done so much, and and your attachment to the community is the thing that comes through watching all the different tributes to you and so on. So I want to ask you, but having to uh, walk away from that as well. I'm sure you'll continue some of that work, but we'll. Be back with Gord Steinke right after this. We get music and stories from Global Edmonton anchor Gord Steinke tonight. Uh, I, I was it was actually fun to watch all your videos. To be honest, that was uh, that was great. It's uh, it was fun to hear the tunes as well. Oh, you know, and I should mention you know that song you just heard. My best buddy, I've been playing with him since 1978. That's Randy Rink, 
Uh, he's well known in Canadian music circles. He uh, he played. He was Shane Yellowbird's uh, guitar player for many what? many years, and unfortunately, Shane just uh, passed away at the age of forty-two. So we've lost quite yeah. a a great uh, country singer songwriter. And uh, I had the fortunate pleasure to meet him a few times. Just the nicest guy. But I just thought I'd throw that in because Randy's been yeah. uh, a big part of my music as well. Yeah, I was reading about that yesterday. That was really sad. He was young, just forty-two, I think. Eh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's quite tragic. Yeah, uh, and that brings me. I mean, you, you've you've met so many people over the years doing the job. What 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 do you find uh, has been mm-hmm. the greatest gift of being being the global Edmonton anchor for this time? Well, there's there's so much, and I'd have I'd have to think that uh, first off, as as a, a journalist, you know, in storytelling, I'm lucky to be. The greatest gift is I've worked in many other newsrooms. This newsroom was super uh, tight and very uh, team oriented. You know, there's no, you know, you know, I know you've been in many newsrooms yourself and worked in TV and radio news. And some of those newsrooms can be quite competitive, even amongst reporters. Ours has never been that way. We all work together, uh, even the studio crew and everybody's just together to put the best, you know, share sources and make sure everything's going. So that's been a real treat to work over the years because there's been a whole changing a cycle of people, of course, as they move on. But uh, I guess the biggest thing has just been in this community is one of the most generous communities I've ever been in um, with the motorcycle community and things like that. They just, uh, people just step forward. If it's whether it causes diabetes or kids with cancer or whatever it is, this, this place really steps up to the plate and it's hundreds of thousands of dollars get raised for these charities. And I don't know why that is. It's, it's just fun to think, you know, to be a part of that and to spearhead it and give these uh, charities such a, a little bit of a boost or do whatever you can. Yeah, that was really interesting because I know when, when we all start out in this business, we really start out as news people, right? That's what you are. You're right. a news yeah. person. And then over time, I, 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 just watching how, how did you become involved with the charities? And obviously they mean a lot to you and it became a really important part of who you were and the job you did. It wasn't just reading yeah. the news, it was being part of this community. How did that evolve uh, over time for you? Well, it just sort of, the way I pick charities is um, sort of something that's, and this is what I would pass along to the guy or gal, whoever takes over from what I've been doing, is pick a charity that's close to your heart and has some kind of personal connection because uh, you've really become passionate about it and people can tell you're involved and and it's also very rewarding. It's kind of selfish, actually. I, I could pick a charity, say, Ride for Dad for Prostate Cancer and say, my Uncle Bob and my Uncle Don right now. They're prostate cancer survivors. So I got on board with that. And also, selfishly, I love to ride motorcycles. So I would, (laughs) hey, what a great date. What a great deal. I I get to go out Saturday morning and lead 1,200 bikers down to Drayton Valley and Red Deer and back again. So that's that's really important. Also, unfortunately, my sister was killed by a drunk driver. And I got on board with that uh, to go into schools and talk about the dangers of drinking and driving. So things that sort of really hit home, I think that's important. Yeah, I understand that also brought you back to music too. That was one of the things yeah. that sort of brought you back to music was was the death year. And my condolences. Even all this time later, it still must be difficult to talk about. Oh, thanks, Ben. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, she's it's like she's still here, but uh, you know what it's like. That's just when you lose someone that young. It's just the way it is. But yeah, she was one of my biggest music fans. I mean, they travel out to see the band too in Ontario from out here, and and so I put a, together a record, wrote the songs, got my good friends got back into recording and had a riot doing it and then took the money and put it into what was called the party program to raise awareness in high schools. So that kind of a thing just seems to be a way to go for me anyway, because you just have such close ties to the community then. And, and those, and those charities, those have been things I've been doing for 30 years and I'm sure I'll continue to be in, involved with them because you get to know the people so well, like family and the little kids with cancer, we put them on the back of our motorcycles in May and drive them around Horlack Park, and they're just the toughest, most courageous, funniest kids. They're, it's amazing. They're on the back of the bike asking you to go a little faster and telling you what their cancer is. And the good news, the rewarding thing, I love this part, is the kids, uh, when I started, you wouldn't see the kids come back. Unfortunately, you know, they didn't have the treatment. Now, starting to see the same kids come back year after year. So that's a really positive step in the fight against cancer. Absolutely. I, I know that storytelling has always been your passion. So I suspect what comes next for you will involve some form of storytelling 
that continues. But do you have an idea of what lies ahead? You talked about your bucket list and things you wanted to do, but what comes next for you, Gord? Well, it's almost like uh, my wife, Deb, and I have been uh, thinking there's motorcycle rides we want to do. And, and the big one is uh, get over to Spain and then go across into Morocco. You can take a ferry across. So that'll be exciting. But I hope to do um, some more speaking engagements and things. I've, I've got a couple of offers stateside, funny enough. So I'll probably end up doing that. Uh, Mob Museum, I wrote a book called Mobsters and Rum Runners. So the Mob Museum in, in Las Vegas is uh, a big supporter. And little things like that. And also just spend more time with family. You know what? You know what? Like working in TV, everything is dictated to the second. And I can't wait just to have a day where I don't have to keep looking at the second hand on the clock to know where I'm going to be and, you know, what you have to do. Because that's, I think that's got to affect your, uh, your well being. So I'm looking for a break from that where I, you know, I go, oh, geez, the, the day went by and I didn't look at a clock once. That'll be different. It's, it will be different. Was it a tough choice? Was it a tough decision? It, it, it must always be a bit of a tough decision, but it, it seems to me just watching how you described it, that it felt like the time was right. Yeah, the time was right. I think, uh, you know, the pandemic has been a real grind. It's sort of been every day. It's been like Groundhog Day. Every day has been exactly kind of the same. And our camera guys are roving around uh, the town. They're, you know, we still, people still aren't allowed in the station. We're still getting tested. Very skeleton crew. It's getting a little bit better. But, you know, it's, uh, that's all going to change and come back. But, yeah, I just thought, you know, I'd like to just see what else, just get away from the rat race a bit. And it's such a whirlwind, the news every day. And uh, we can do it. My goal always was kind of, I'm 63 years old, so it gives me like two years. I, I can trick myself into saying, hey, that's like an early retirement. I did it. <laughs> <laughs> I only have about a, you know what it's like, I only have about a minute. I'm watching a clock now, thinking about you talking about clocks. Oh, yeah. Um, one great yeah. memory, one great, your, what, what, your one stellar memory. I have a few, but what is your stellar memory of all well, this when you look back at it? Well, it, that's hard. You know, there, there's the real hardcore news guy would say it was being in the Fort McMurray wildfires at the beginning, the middle, and the end. And being in a ditch in the RCMP and getting ready to broadcast live in the six and, and the technology that we could do. I thought back to my old days with a satellite truck. And here we are, <laughs> excuse me, in uh, 20 minutes. Well, the fire was right coming at us. The RCMP comes down and my cameraman and I are sitting in a ditch ready to go. And they said, wow. you guys better move. The, the wind just shifted and the flames are coming towards you. So you could see the smoke. But here's the cool thing is we were able to go 20 miles down the road. Not even that set up in the ditch and i don't even think we missed our hit at six o'clock we were still able to, <laughs> that's, and that's that's just with my cameraman paul and me and a thing called DeGero, and we could broadcast from anywhere so that's come a that's long a great, way from a big big old truck it it, it certainly has gord Stakey, thank you th so much for sharing that with us uh best of luck i look forward to hearing updates from uh from your motorcycle trip <laughs> right on well thanks so much it's been a pleasure ben